In the 1800s, in Germany, a movement arose within the church that challenged the integrity of Scripture. It was a movement in academic circles that had a strong push from some German seminaries that basically said what you read in Scripture is a nice collection of stories that have very little basis in history, in, in history, in historical value. And, and this as a, an academic perspective permeated out in different ways throughout uh, the world. One of the gentlemen who it permeated to was a fellow named Sir William Ramsey, William Mitchell Ramsey. He wasn't a sir when it first permeated to him. He had not been knighted yet in England or Great Britain. But Sir William Ramsey studied. And Sir William Ramsey was not the kind of guy who was studying to be a biblical scholar. He was a humanities scholar. He has a degree in classics, which is Greek and Latin. He has degrees in humanities, He has, which is what archaeology used to fall under. Um, studied Sanskrit, which got him interested in the, the Middle East and Central Asia. Uh, he has an Oxford degree from Oxford University in classics, another one in humanities. It was scholarshiped by Oxford in the late... Uh, 1870s, early 1880s, I think it was, was scholarship to actually go over to Turkey and Greece and those areas to dig and to adventure and to uh, uh, do archaeological work, uh, travel and research. And so he went over there, wound up going back, except for about an eight-year hiatus, went back for decades, for decades, through the 1880s, 1890s, uh, the 1900s, he had about an eight-year hiatus, but the 1910s, 20s, all the way up till the time he died in 1939, he would go back. He was the principal archaeologist for that region within the world. Okay? Now, he was the first professor of archaeology Oxford ever had. Not only that, Oxford gave him, on top of those degrees he earned, they gave him three honorary degrees. Outside of Oxford, he got degrees from nine universities. Actually, the nine may include Oxford because he got six degrees out of England. So I, I would put Oxford into that. But nine honorary degrees for this fella. One of the most highly educated, smartest, most influential people of his time. He's listed in the who's who. You can Wikipedia him. He's listed in the who's who of English biography. Uh, this was a gentleman who was knighted by uh, the King of England. This is a gentleman who, even though he wasn't Catholic, was given the gold medal of Pope Leo XIII. This fella was brilliant. And when it came to the Bible... This fella had some scholastic studies. He studied in Germany and he studied in England. But the real niche for this fella, or niche for this fella, depending on how you pronounce that word, was in history. Ultimately, he was a historian. That's what his archaeology led him to. 
And Sir William Ramsey said, in the realm of writing history, there are four different kinds of books or writings, four different ways to write history. One kind or class of historical writing is what he called historical romance. A historical romance is a book that's got a framework of history, but is basically all made up. Let me give you an example. Gone with the Wind. Okay, There was a civil war, and the North and the South did fight, and there were plantations. But Clark Gable, you know, Scarlett O'Hara, they, they're kind of made-up characters. The story itself is kind of a made-up story, a historical romance on the backdrop of historical events. Make sense? Okay, that's class one. Second type, legend. This is something where there may have been some historical person, but time has allowed people to add more and more and more and more to it to where the true historical person is lost and we just live merely with legend that history has produced. For example, King Arthur. He saw it coming. He nailed it. I saw him. He had either King Arthur or Johnny Appleseed in his head. I wasn't sure which one. But both of them are equally true. King Arthur is someone that probably existed. Knights of the Round Table probably existed. But, you know, maybe Sir Lancelot, Sir Galahad, and Guinevere the Fair. But we don't really have any basis for thinking what we read about is anything other than legend. Okay? There's a third kind of historical writing that Sir William Ramsey spoke of or wrote of. He says this is what he calls second or third-rate history. These are people who write history, but their research is very shoddy. These are people who write history, but if you really want to know if it's true or not, you need to go do your own digging. It's not reliable history. Some may be right, some may be wrong. Typically, based on my review, this is not what William Ramsey said, but, but from the Lanier perspective here, these are the history books we read that have no footnotes. <laughs> the lawyer in me. Warning lights flash out when I read someone who is asserting to speak with this authoritative voice, yet they never seem to document anything. And I get nervous. Ramsey calls it second or third-rate history. And Ramsey said there is a fourth kind of historical writing, what he called history of the highest order. This is the writing that's concerned with being precisely dead-on accurate. This is the writing where truth is important, not only in the big picture, but in the smallest detail. This is that clear, concise writing that not only is accurate historically, but is put together in such a way that it conveys a message. The purpose of the writing. There aren't a lot, Ramsey would say, of, of good histories of the highest order. 
Now, Ramsey is going to go over and do archaeological surveys and work in Turkey and Greece. He's been scholarship to do it. So he takes his resources and among his arsenal he takes in his bag is his New Testament because the book of Acts has a lot of information. However, having studied under these German teachers and, and their progeny, Ramsey believed that the book of Acts, among these four kinds of historical writings, the book of Acts, we'll put him back up there with his picture. Ramsey said the book of Acts belongs to either category two or maybe, maybe category three. It's either legend, with there being some truth, there obviously was a New Testament church. You know, Paul probably existed, but all of the rest of that's just kind of made up in the years to follow to make a good storyline and push an agenda. Or maybe it actually has some historical value, but it was written so many years after Paul by someone who was so divorced from reality that it's got no basis for any good scientist using it to do investigation. So while he took his New Testament with him in his bag as he went over there to do his archaeological work, he never thought he would use it because it wasn't reliable. Well, Sir William Ramsey got over there and he started looking for historical sites and he started investigating the various historical sites. And as he did it, he was finding everything that he had taken with him to rely on faulty. With one exception. The more he put it under the microscope, the more he looked at it closely, the more Ramsey said in his own words... It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details, the Acts narrative, in other words, the book of Acts, showed marvelous truth. He goes on to say, Acts was indeed written by Luke, a personal friend of Paul's, and a great and fully reliable resource. Sir William Ramsey moved Acts to category four, history of the highest order, right in all of its exquisite detail, reliable. The interesting part of this, Sir William Ramsey was never someone who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. This is not William Ramsey, the scholar, coming to it and saying, ah, I believe that the scripture is inerrant, it's the word of God, and so uh, uh, I'm going to believe it even if science dictates otherwise. William Ramsey came to this conclusion because science demanded it. His intellectual honesty demanded it. He grew into a position of saying, this is accurate, this is right, in its smallest details. And the works that William Ramsey wrote, still today, a hundred years later, are viewed by most scholars from across the board, conservative to liberal, as key, important, seminal, foundational works 
on the life of Paul, the birth of the early church, and the book of Acts. You will see throughout this class, I footnote him quite a bit. If you've got a copy of of F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's book on Paul, you'll see F.F. F. Bruce does the same. And so as we look today a little bit more at Paul's missionary journey, I want to use this class to emphasize, among other things, the accuracy of what we're reading. See, I love this fact because I'm a lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. And one of the things I do is I evaluate witnesses. And if I find a witness who's testifying about a matter... And upon cross-examination, I determine or I prove that that witness lies or is a sloppy scholar or says things when he doesn't know if they're true or not. They just sound really good and fit their purpose. I call those jukebox witnesses. Where you can put enough money in and they'll sing most any song you want them to sing. They don't have credibility with me. But I was asked to try a case one time on behalf of 21 men that I was told were deathly sick. And I got one of the best doctors I could find, an independent doctor. And I said, I want you to look at these men. I need you to testify for me. All 21 of them are deathly sick. And he looked at them, he examined everyone, and he came back to me and he said, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, 17 of them are deathly sick. Four of them are fine and can probably compete in the next Olympics. I said, we don't have a problem. He said, well, the problem is I'm going to be honest and I'm going to have to say that in front of the jury. I said, we don't have a problem. I'm going to be honest. If that's the truth, I'm going to say it in front of the jury too. The jury heard my expert say that 17 of these guys are sick. Four of them are not. Do you know what it did for that expert's credibility? The other side, of course, had their stable of thoroughbreds that all came in and pronounced them all Olympic athletes <laughs> with no credibility whatsoever. But Acts is a book that we can measure and test with archaeology and a number of different things and come to a resounding conclusion that it's dead on. I mean, understand, we can talk about the governor of each state in the United States because we have governors. In the Roman Empire, they had all sorts of different job titles for the people who were administering it. You know, as bizarre as it is, and as I mean, I have years of Latin, years of Greek, years of study. I still can't keep straight what a proconsul, a consul, praetor, praetorship, all these different things. I can sort of tell you what they are, but don't write a book based on what I'm going to tell you. Luke nails everybody's title. Dead on. Dead on. When they're doing it. Where they're doing it. Dead on. It's amazing. And the reason I love it is because you get a credible witness, they're credible to me across the board. Now, Luke wrote this book, We're Studying Acts for the Life of Paul right now. What else did he write? The Gospel of Luke. It was a two-part series he wrote. Take that credibility and go back to the first half of his writing, too. 
because that's that precise writing where he talks about the virgin birth. That's that precise writing where he details to us so much of the life and the death of the resurrection of Christ. This was not a sloppy scholar of legend or the second and third rate. This was a scholar of the highest order. Now with that, let's pick up what he did with Paul. This is our Mediterranean map. I've got a little green arrow there where Corinth is. Now you can see the boot that's Italy. You can see on the, as you're facing it, right side of the screen, Turkey. And you've got Greece sort of dipping down in the middle between Italy and Turkey. You with me? Let's zoom in a little bit. Now this is Greece with a little bit of Turkey. Paul was in Athens last Sunday in our class. Paul was in Athens. Paul ventures and leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, which is about 50 miles away. Three-day walk. Paul goes to Corinth, and when Paul goes there, he's not walking into a town that we know nothing about. We don't know that much about Berea. Remember Paul was in Berea? We don't know that much. Corinth, we know oodles. Corinth was the capital of Greece at that time. So there's a lot written in history. I've got books and books and books by people who, this is, I brought Strabo's Geography, books eight and nine. Strabo was a writer a little bit before Paul, but in the first century. Strabo was this fella. See, this is uh, uh, an edition that's put out by the Loeb Classical Library, which is um, uh, Harvard, puts these out. And, and Strabo wrote at the time, and so you can see Strabo is in Greek on one side, and then they translate it in English on the other. They've got a whole series. And if you're still working on your Greek, that K-O, K-O, that looks like a P, but it's a what? R. R. I. And that V is actually an N. And that's a theta. Corintho. See, he's writing about Corinth. It's fascinating to read about this town. And I, 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 I think it's useful to read about the town. When you read about it, you'll find that ancient Corinth, this is what Gordon Fee says in his commentary. He says, to put it into American, instead of reading all of this, Corinth is kind of like New York City with a little bit of Los Angeles and Las Vegas mixed in. <laughs> That's ancient Corinth. Ancient Corinth was a town of great wealth, a town of great power, a town of great connections, and a town of... Filthy living. They had this slogan, what happens in Corinth? <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, <laughs> I've got to go to Las Vegas next week, but I won't be able to tell you about it. Uh, <laughs> um, now, when I go, I can tell you about it. Corinth. See that red line? That red line is how you'd have to sail around this part of Greece, the tip of Greece. It was 200 miles. It was a very dangerous sailing route. The winds were horrible. The buffeting, lots of ships lost. 
But if you can see where Corinth is, let's go back to the earlier. <laughs> yeah, this just really didn't work the way it was supposed to. So we're going way back. Ah, see where Corinth is? It's got two harbors. It's got a harbor on your left, which is the harbor that points towards Italy. And it's got a harbor on your right, which is the harbor that goes to Turkey. It's got two harbors. And those two harbors um, um, are, uh, here's the, here they are on a, another satellite view. The one on the left and the one on the right. Now, if you look at this satellite view, you see that line that connects them? Looks like a canal. It's a canal. <laughs> but it hadn't always been there. Here's a close-up of it. Right here. That canal's not always been there. It's five and a half miles across. And what the Corinthians did, and what the culture did, because it was safer, they would take their boats into that West Harbor from Italy, and instead of trying to sail all around the tip, they'd pull the boats out. They had this marble railroad. They didn't have any engines. They didn't have any tracks. But they had this marble pavement and big logs that were nice and smooth and round. And they had crews that would pull the boat onto the logs and just roll on those logs the five miles to get the boat over to the other harbor. It was safer. Now, while the crews are doing that and charging a good penny to do it, by the way, that canal was first attempted to be built by Alexander the Great. And, uh, one of the historians, it may be Strabo, one of the historians says, uh, or current writer says, that's the only thing he ever started he couldn't finish. Um, it wasn't finished until like 100 years ago. They pull these boats. After you've pulled them off that last log, guys would pick up that last log, run, put it in front of them. Just kept it going the whole way. Now, what do you think the boat captain and the crew's doing while those men are moving those boats? They're in Corinth spending their money. Corinth is a, a sailor's town. <laughs> no, a little rougher than that. <laughs> Corinth is a sailor's town. In Corinth, they had tons of temples, but one temple in particular was a temple to Aphrodite. The love goddess. The goddess of lust. Aphrodite had a temple that, according to some old scholars, had over 1,000 prostitutes, temple prostitutes. We don't have the remains of the temple to Aphrodite. That's actually a temple to Apollos that you see there in Corinth in that slide because it was overbuilt during the Middle Ages. It's up on the, the Acro-Corinth, the top of the hill outside of Corinth. But even if the fellow was exaggerating when he said over a thousand, the point is there were temple prostitutes aplenty for all the sailors coming into town. Um, a lot of translators call them courtesans. But that's not totally accurate. That's a polite word. 
Strabo would say at one point that, um, actually he says some things that we won't repeat in here because we have all ages. But he says, the city was crowded with people and grew rich. For instance, the ship captains freely squandered their money and hence the proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. He's talking about them squandering their money with the temple prostitutes. There is no surprise that Corinth was riff, full of sexual issues. That Paul has to continually write to them about it. And Paul didn't go in and say, oh, I know it's just the culture of the day. It's just something that's there. It's just pervasive. So it's okay. Be a Christian and just live in it, but live in it lightly. Paul tells him to flee sexual immorality that has got no place in the life of a Christian. Oh, yeah, but I mean, it's just available. It's on the Internet. Or it's just, it's in the songs we sing or our kids listen to. So it's okay because it's kind of cultural. No. He says it's not. It's not a question of what your culture is on this point. Paul says to the Corinthians, you've got hundreds of temples, and they did. But those are temples to dead idols at best, maybe demons. You've only got one temple to the Lord God, and it's your body. You don't go joining your body to a prostitute. Don't join the temple of the Lord to a prostitute. See, he's writing to a city that's got this as problems. Let me tell you another reason Corinth is a rich city. They hold the Isthmian Games. That's an isthmus. It's uh, almost an island. (laughs) Once they did the canal, I guess it became an island. Um, But that isthmus would have Olympic-type games every other year and had for hundreds of years. And all of Corinth was a buzz. I mean, the convention center would rent out. All the hotel rooms would rent out. It brought in a lot of money. The, you know, Sparta, those guys were like, that's down there on the Isthmus. You know, you've got all these different, they'd stop the wars, even when they're fighting each other for the Isthmus games. And Corinth had been famous for that for hundreds of years and would continue to be for some time. Are we not surprised that Paul would use that to teach when he'd say, don't you know in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Only one receives the prize. So, run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. See, this he's writing to people who, and, and he's there, people with these games. Let me tell you what else. When Paul goes there, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. They're tent makers. The word for tent maker is actually a leather worker. They did more than simply make tents. But Aquila and Priscilla, Luke says, had recently been ejected from Rome because Claudius the emperor had kicked out the Jews. What do you think about that? Now that's what Luke says. Wouldn't you think if something like that had happened, we'd know about it in history? Well, we do. You can read Suetonius who wrote back, he was a Roman writer, 
Claudius ejected Jews from Rome because the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. That's a Latin misspelling of Christ. Christus. He has it as an E instead of an I. I guess his hearing wasn't great. Um, I mean, we've got it from secular sources. We're going to see that in more detail when we get to the book of Romans because the book of Romans was written when you have a church that had started with Jewish Christians and the Greeks come in and the Greeks become Christians. So you've got a Jewish church with Greeks coming in and then all the Jews get booted out. And so the Greeks get to run the church. All of a sudden the Greeks are preaching and teaching. It's pastor Greek. The Greeks have hold of the budget. And then what happens when the Jews come back in a year and a half later? The Jews come back and say, okay, we're back. Hand the baton back to us. It's our turn. And the Greeks are saying, you know, the wildest thing happened. We were doing fine without you. And Paul writes the letter to the Romans trying to explain how Jew and Greek alike stand before God on the same principles. And what is special about Jews and what is special about Greeks, but it's got nothing to do with the salvation end. So that's going to be important. But Priscilla and Aquila are there in Corinth and Paul meets them and they become good friends and Paul works with them in the marketplace. Paul works in the Agora, the marketplace. Paul did, did not, nor did he ever go into a community and teach the Torah, go into the synagogues and teach scripture and ask for money. After folks become a Christian, Paul would accept their support. But he never went to them and asked for the money ahead of time. There was a reason why. Oral law for the Jews, which was written down in the Mishnah in 200 A.D., said the following, whoever derives worldly benefit from teachings of Torah takes his life out of this world. In other words, you want to charge for teaching Torah, God's word, that's fine, but the money you get is your benefit. Now Paul says, you know, I'm not going into the Jewish synagogue to try and convince the Jews to become Christians while I have my hand out to them for the benefit of teaching them. I'll work like a dog 24-7 so that they know I'm in there teaching them because it's truth. Now, once they become Christians, Paul has no qualms saying, hey, guys, you want to help me? The more you help, the less I have to work and make intense and the more I can preach. It's an interesting little dynamic that happened in Paul's life. Now, as we read the story of Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18... It's fascinating, and it's something I'm going to take just a moment, and I've gone to more detail in your handout. If you go back to the church history literacy lessons, I think lesson 62, I talked about the different families of biblical texts. Let me see how to explain this. If this was the boot, we'll make that Italy, and we've got like Greece down here, that's got Corinth on it, and we're coming around, we got like Turkey. And then we come around, we got the rest of the Mediterranean. Oh, y'all have to tell me when I'm doing something dorky. Okay, this is, this is Italy. That's the boot. You with me? This is Greece. That's the word. This is Turkey. Sorry. 
This, that's the Nile. Okay, Israel's over here, so I guess that's the Nile. Yeah, the Nile should be there. This is desert. Those are the waves. Um, <laughs> when the New Testament is written, they, the Xerox machines were out. And they couldn't just shoot copies. And so for the first couple hundred years, you got people who are sitting there hand copying it. Which is a real blessing for us. We've got thousands of early manuscripts that we can compare to figure out if someone missed a comma or something. We can come real close to putting together the original. But ultimately, when we try to put together the original, there are some areas where scholars make educated decisions. And we have one of them here in this portion of Acts. And this is why it's a good time to talk about it. There is a text, Alexandria, Egypt was over here. There are texts that are called Alexandrian family that seem to all have the same basic. It's like um, if you took four of us, we'll take uh, uh, Lewis and Gary and Richard and Ken, and we get them up here, and they all four start, I, I hand them each a New Testament and say, copy this. In fact, I need about 100 copies. Okay. Well, they might all sit there and copy it the first time. And Lewis, you know, he's probably going to get it. He's a pretty detailed guy. He'll get it just about right. Ken's got eight plates in the air, and he's thinking about all the different things he's got to do. So he's going to zip through it. He might change Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus one time. You know, just flip the words. And then Gary's going to get up here, and Gary's got that engineer-type mentality. He probably is only going to get through half of it because he's taking so long it's not going to get done. <laughs> and then we got Richard up here, and Richard's great guy. He's going to get through it, going to get through it as good as he can, but he's got a new grandbaby. And there are going to be times where he gets called away to go help with the grandbaby, and he's going to come back and wind up writing the same line twice. And then what we do is we take those four guys and we say, okay, You've written us some text, but y'all are going way too slow. So, Ken, let's get five people. You, now that you've got five of them done, let's get five people to take your five. Each one of them gets one, and they'll start writing. Well, every mistake that Ken made, those five folks are going to repeat the mistake, aren't they? That's the Ken family of text. And they're going to, we'll be able to group them all together because they all have the same mistakes in a lot of places. And then Lewis... Everywhere he messed up, the folks that he hands it out to, if Moriarty's doing one of his, and, and Larry, and you guys are out there doing it, we've got, ooh, D doing one, they're all going to make the same mistakes that Lewis made because they're copying him, right? And some of them might think, Larry might think, Lewis messed up on this one, and he may decide to try and change it. Might not be one Lewis messed up on. But by and large, we, you see what happens? Same thing happens all the way around. Okay, that's what's happened. So scholars are able to take all these different texts and say, you know, there's one, one that really had an Alexandrian start. That was like Ken's. That's one of those key first ones. There's another one that they call the Western text. And it's one that, that really was used a lot in Italy. It was used in parts of Western Africa. And so there's a Caesarean text over here. It came out backwards. No, that would be breach. Um, 
there's, there, 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 there are these different families, okay? Scholars generally use the Alexandrian text. In fact, one group of scholars called Westcott and Hort even give it a new name. They call it the neutral text, which is kind of self-serving. It makes it sound like it's really good. But it is really good. It's a great text. The Western text has some additional things that are not in the neutral text. And mostly scholars think this is someone who's adding to the original text to try and make it make additional sense. You with me? It'd be like uh, if Billy is transcribing off of what Ken did and she's saying, you know, I don't know if he messed up or not, but this doesn't really make sense, so I'm going to add a little bit here so it makes a little better sense so people understand what Ken meant. Because sometimes Ken was a little too busy and he may have missed this. So she's trying to fix some things. Okay. So that's the, the issue with the Western text. Now, having said that, there are places where the Western text seems pretty good. Um, and scholars, I mean, we have copies of, of transcripts that go back into the 100s for the Western as well as the Alexandrian or neutral. But let me give you an example. Where Paul goes into the synagogue, the neutral text, which is what you'll read in your Bibles generally, says, and he, which is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The Western text says it a little bit different. And scholars generally say the Western text may be right on this, even if it's not in the original, at least the substance of what they're saying is probably right. This is probably what happened, even if it's not the way Luke wrote it. You with me? In other words, there's an addition here, but it's probably a historically accurate addition, even though it's not God's scripture. So you've got to be careful. Okay? But here's what the Western text says. And entering into the synagogue each Sabbath day, they added entering into, he held a discussion inserting the name of the Lord Jesus and persuaded not only Jews, but also Greeks. I put in italics the additions. Here's what the writer of the Western text, and if it's not in the original, which I doubt it is, I'd consider this a commentary on the text. Here's what he wants us to know. When Paul's in the synagogue, and Paul would stand up and read the Torah, the Old Testament, when he'd read prophecies about Jesus, he'd insert the name of Jesus there. So if he's reading in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, he'd say the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Because he wanted them to understand how Jesus Christ is the answer to these prophecies. So he would insert the name of Jesus in as he taught. Because for Paul, as Paul explained to the Corinthians later when he wrote him, he resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the text that makes me think this is probably historically accurate, even though if it's not the way Luke wrote it up, because Paul did. And Paul can speak about the Old Testament, and Paul can preach from the Old Testament and still preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we have that. We have Paul there, and, and Timothy and Silas come and join Paul while he's there in Corinth. And when they come, they start doing work, so Paul's freed up to do more preaching because they're helping make it. And this is Paul, who resolved to know nothing except Christ crucified. As a result of them coming, uh, we have conversions of people. Gaius Titius Justus 
is converted. Crispus, who is the leader of the synagogue, is converted, gets kicked out from leading the synagogue. And there are others who are converted as well. Um, There's a fellow we read about in Romans. Paul writes the letter to the Roman church during a later visit to Corinth. But when he writes it, we know that, oh, I don't want to lose this. Okay, the city treasurer in Latin, that's the adile, okay? Or idole, excuse me. And it, it's, in Greek it would be, Dale, the oikonomos. But it's, it's the city treasurer. He was a guy named Erastus in Corinth. We know it. We found a paving stone. This is the paving stone. See that? That's Erastus. E-R-A-S-T-U-S. And then it says pro, P-R-O. And then it starts um, the idle, A-I-D. You cannot make out the rest of it. Then you go down to the bottom of the paving stone. It has S as an abbreviation, P as an abbreviation, and then the verb strawit. That's Latin. Do you know what it means? Well, Erastus, strawit. All right, Erastus pro. Pro means like quid pro quo, this for that, in return for. Erastus pro, in return for, idelai, is the idolship city treasurer, Erastus, in return for being city treasurer, laid this stone, that's what strawwit means, S-P. S is an abbreviation common for sua, which means on his own. And P was an abbreviation for pecunia, which is money. So on his own dollar. In other words, Erastus, the city secretary, I mean city treasurer, laid this paving stone at his own expense. Pretty good find, huh? Paul in Romans. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. That fellow who laid that paving stone, Paul converted. The Bible is not something that's a bunch of legend. If I could leave you with anything today, it's to have confidence in what you read. Now, while Paul's there, God assures Paul not to fear. He's not going to be attacked. That stood true. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. The closest he got to being attacked actually turned out to have the shoe on the other foot. Paul gets called in front of the proconsul Gallio, who is someone we know about extensively from other history. A witty guy with one-liners, a penchant for one-liners. And Paul gets called in front of him, and the Jews say, look, this guy's teaching something that's a false religion. Gallio says, let me hear about it. By the way, this takes place on the bima, the judgment seat. The bima is this judgment seat that's on a platform. Paul gives his defense. Gallio listens to it and says, oh, look, y'all are just fighting over Jewish things. Go handle this in your own Jewish court. And kicks him out. At which point... The guards beat up the Jew, main Jew, that brought Paul before the judge. Kind of weird. She was on the other foot. Paul didn't get beat up. Now, having said that, the bima, by the way, which is this judgment seat there, you can see the start of the, where the pillars would be. That's the word Paul uses when he writes back to the 
Corinthians and says, for we must appear before the Bema, the judgment seat, but not of Gallio. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what's due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Same word, Bema. Okay, next week. While Paul's in Corinth, he writes First and Second Thessalonians. So we're going to look at those letters. An interesting tidbit, I'd like you to, here's your assignment for next week, if, you, if you've got time and desire. Read First and Second Thessalonians. They're not long, four or five chapters apiece. But read it with this question. Which one did he write first? Because the odds are the reason they're in the order they're in is because they, the orders, the books of Paul, his letters to the churches are first and then his personal letters are second. The letters to the churches seem to be in size order, biggest ones to the littlest. Not in order of when they were written by any stretch of the imagination. So whoever put them together doesn't necessarily know which one was written first. That's not how they put them together. My question for you is, as you read them, ask yourself, could Paul maybe have written 2 Thessalonians first and then 1 Thessalonians second? Because that'll be some of what we talk about. Here are our points for home. The reliability of Luke. As uh, Sir William Ramsey said, it was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Oh, but it does. As Paul would later tell Timothy, continue, and this is my encouragement to us, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When we study these scriptures, as we're getting to know Paul better, we're getting to know Luke quite a bit too. Very good scholar. And we can take encouragement from what we're reading. It's not pie in the sky. It's history of the highest order. Next point. God prepares our ways in the world. He sends Paul into Corinth. He's got Aquila and Priscilla there who are there because Claudius has kicked out the Jews. And so Paul's got ready-made two dear friends who become lifelong missionaries with him, who work with him, who take them into their work, take Paul into their work, they're tent makers, he's a tent maker. The commonality is just incredible. God prepares no less for you and me, our way in this world. No less. The proverb is wonderful that the Lord is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. If you feel that God has turned a blind eye toward you right now in your life, he has not. He has not. Just pray for his vision. Because he sees clearly where you are and what you're doing. Final, let's pray for our missionaries. This year we've got up here some CFBC folks. And we need to pray that they are equipped, that they have uh, the, the courage, the opportunity, and that they have the strength they need to not only continue their mission work, but to rear those children. Because that's really hard. We've got Charles and Amy Cross in here. We prayed for them a couple of weeks ago. They're our missionaries to France. They're going to be going back, Charles when? Beginning of July. 
if you've not gotten to talk to them or gotten to know them, you need to. They've got a lot going on over there that they're doing for God. So let's keep praying for our missionaries. Would you pray with me now, please? Lord, we do lift up to you those who are sowing your seed and reaping your harvest. Uh, Those in our midst, as we try and do that uh, in our communities and in our walk each day, but also for those who have sacrificed their lives to go far off, to see that this world receives the light of your gospel. And it is our prayer that all that you have, uh, have out there will have the courage, will have the strength, will see the opportunity, and successfully walk in the ways that you have prepared for them. Do not let the enemy thwart them. Don't let lack of supplies and needs thwart them. But meet all of their needs to meet your purposes, please. I also pray for those in here who sometimes struggle with your word and struggle to understand it and struggle to accept it. Lord, may we never think that you and all of your wisdom and depths and riches have put before us something that we can fully grasp. And I pray that none of us will ever reject your word because we can't fully understand it but that you will, through your spirit, continue to grow faith, confidence, assurance, and enlightenment as we spend our time studying the marvelous truth that is your word. And I also pray for those who are burdened, who don't feel like you're watching where they are right now. And I pray that your tenderness will touch their heart like cool water in a parched throat. That you'll give them some affirmation, some showing that you've not left anyone, that you watch over the ways of your children. This is our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.